Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting edition of the Remnant Podcast. I am freshly back from being trapped in Florida with my daughter because the snowstorms came in and left us stuck there. While I was there, and we can talk about this later if you like, I was stung by a vicious green caterpillar that uh, the pain has not completely gone away yet. But I'll just leave that as a mystery for you people to wonder what that's all about. But it was not a euphemism. This is the, I guess, 80th episode of the Remnant Podcast, not counting episode 11, uh, which we don't talk about. And it's interesting. So I was listening to the new Bulwark podcast, Charlie Sykes' new podcast over at the Bulwark, an exciting new journal. And around 27 minutes in, maybe we can get the audio, uh, my colleague David French starts whining about how I stole the name, or I got to the name, I claimed the name The Remnant first for this podcast. And um, well, why don't we listen to David for a second? So do you feel irrelevant? You know, look, I don't really think about things in those terms. I mean, I try to be faithful to the moment. What am, what am I supposed to do as, as principally a Christian, secondarily a person of, of specific conservative convictions in this moment? And I really – I'm kind of mad at my colleague and friend Jonah Goldberg for taking the podcast name The Remnant because uh, <laughs> I, I love it, and I love it for some theological reasons. Okay, so I think it's kind of interesting – it kind of reminded me that it was it's an important thing to remind listeners every now and then where the title of this podcast comes from. It is it is a reference to one of my favorite essays of all time in the history of conservatism and libertarianism written by a guy named Albert J. Nock called Isaiah's Job and it appeared in the 1936 in 1936 in the Atlantic. And I won't summarize the entire thing, but the whole idea is that um, it was, you know, it was inspired by the book of Isaiah, and I'm not going to summarize all that, but it's this idea that at any given moment, there are a few people left, um, even in times of woe, who have basically their, you know, to quote Ron Burgundy, have their heads on a swivel for a vicious cockfight. No, but uh, who are have a, a, a sense about right living and right understanding and all the rest. And I don't mean this to be a smug thing because it's not, but that's sort of what I always saw as, as, as the forces of MAGA and populism and nationalism were sweeping through the right. I was surprised at how many people jumped on board and I was also surprised by how many people didn't. And the people who didn't, I've tended, some of whom I disagree with about one thing or another, some of whom I agree with entirely on everything, um, are sort of my idea of the remnant. And I think given how many people have emailed me or tweeted at me to say that they can't listen to this podcast anymore because it's too critical of Trump, I think a significant number of the listeners are a remnant as well. And uh, so today I actually bring in an old friend of mine. I can't remember when we first met, uh, but he is the executive editor, managing editor? Yeah, I think they call me the executive editor. Okay. Uh, the guy who yells at people. Um, at the Bulwark, Jonathan Last. Jonathan, welcome to the Remnant. Hey, man, it's been a long time coming. I was going to come on in December, but then uh, life sort of took hold of me, and we weren't able to do it. I understand. Also, you have a you have a brood. You have a large number. So of, many children. Yeah. God help me. How many do you have uh, now? Four. Okay, so Carney's still whipping your ass. Yeah, as he like says every you know this is like Tim Carney starts around the office going hey how many kids do you got yeah you know well, it gets a competition or something uh, but you know what when you win you lose uh-huh. on that so I'm happy to let Tim Carney have his 19 children yeah yeah if only he could afford shoes for all of them that's the only thing um, anyway oh and and also part of the reason why you're here is that 
you know, and I will confess it's partly because of the constant hectoring from Jack Butler, who is a fan, I think it's fair to say. But you were the last member of the formerly uh, weekly substandard, now weekly sub-beacon podcast to be on this podcast. Yes. And, uh, I mean, that's my real job, if we could all sure. be honest. I mean, the bulwark and everything else I do, father, husband, is really all secondary to the sub-beacon, which is where I give all of my first fruits of my labor and is the the most important thing. Yeah. So one of the things that's – it's as, as I think we can both agree, Twitter is not the real world. No. Thank God. Yeah. But on Twitter, the footprint of the – let's just call it for the sake of clarity, the sub-beacon from now on. The sub-beacon's Twitter footprint is enormous because yes. there's this thing called the mega thread. Yes. Can you explain what it is, where it comes from, why it is the way it is, how we could kill it maybe from orbit – Anything. You can't kill it. Uh I mean, the mega thread, I think at this point, will outlast Twitter itself. The mega thread actually became self-aware. Do you know this, that they have their own podcast? The mega thread has a podcast? Yeah. So there is Back up. Explain what the mega thread is because, you know, you you have a deeply loyal fan base for a niche podcast. It is a very niche podcast, uh, the Sub Beacon, uh, but with an incredibly deep uh, loyalty for the listener base. That's right. And these people, sort of like the young, uh, the young soldiers, Bolsheviks. No, I was thinking the remake of um, Mad Max: Fury Road. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Witness me. Yes. It's a lot of those kinds of people, but on Twitter, basically. Yeah. Yeah, spraying themselves in the face right before they go into... Allow me to intervene here because I think the better comparison is uh, the scene in Conan the Barbarian in which um, Thulsa Doom beckons one of his followers to jump down from the from the mountain. Come, come, my child. And then she just <laughs> walks to her, plummets to her death. Yeah, yeah. that's the better analogy. I'll leave so, now. Okay. So these folks found each other on Twitter and they started a single long thread, which came to be known as the mega thread. And I don't think they dubbed it the mega thread until it topped a thousand replies. Uh-huh. Uh, and now I, I couldn't even guess, but it, is, it must be in the scores of thousands yeah, yeah, yeah. of replies, uh, probably more than 100,000. And there's a permanent base of like 42 members. But Twitter, weirdly, once you get over 40 people on a thread, will randomly kick people off every once in a while. And we've had NFL players jump into it. Uh, the Cleveland Indians jumped into it. The Cincinnati Reds have jumped into it. It's it's very, very strange. I mm-hmm. don't fully understand it. Uh, they are a bunch of very nice people. I wound up Meeting up with a bunch of them in real life now. I had a bunch of them over to my house for a little party in late December. What could go wrong? What could, and I was <laughs> no, and I was sort of fully prepared for. Okay, so what percentage of these people will be insane? And at least for the ones in my house, the answer was zero. Yeah, all just lovely. Yeah, and they started their own podcast, which is called the Weekly Subs Standard Premium Edition <laughs> podcast. So it is a spinoff show of the show. Uh-huh. Uh. And after like episode five, it was no no longer even about our show. Like uh-huh. it's now its own. It's totally self aware. It's yeah, its yeah, own yeah. thing. Uh, it will outlive the sub beacon probably even. And I find it quite entertaining. I think that's uh, great. I I like it. I, I someday I might even be able to be a guest on that show. Wow. And they you know they they, they crack the top fifty on the iTunes movies and pop culture charts all on their own. <laughs> it's a weird. It's a weird thing run by people who we would like. Yeah. So the type of people we would have been friends with in high school are granted are running this thing. Yeah. Uh, all right. So tell me about tell me about the the bulwark. What is the idea? What is the um, 
editorial mission. Um, what is the bulwark? That's an excellent question. We have now been operational for seven days. So, uh, so Bill Crystal and Charlie Sykes started up a little nonprofit website called The Bulwark a few months ago. Uh, it was just a content aggregator. And they didn't really have any super ambition for it. Then a bunch of stuff happened in late December and a bunch of people suddenly found themselves happily looking for new jobs. And a few of us headed over there and decided to turn it into an actual publication, not just an aggregator. And we – I mean we are literally three weeks from having decided – hey, what if we tried to turn this into a publication and we're up and running and we've got uh, a bunch of freelance contributors and smart people writing for us and like real people like Adam White and Alan Cross who's a very smart evangelical pastor. Is there an office? There is an office uh, here in D.C. and it's – I mean it's it's a startup. Sure. Like it's a – you know, it's literally like six people mm -hmm. uh, and we've got a couple of daily newsletters. We've got – we're doing a little bit with video. We have a daily podcast that Charlie Sykes is running and my, my preference because this is sort of what I do. I, I do a lot of project management stuff. I like – I like standing up digital products. Uh, my view is always to get products up and running first and then iterate as you need to mm -hmm. and not get stuck in planning and, and research and development. You've, you've seen Bridge on the River Kwai, right? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, the, as Alec Guinness says, there's always one more thing. If you wait to launch a product till you've got it perfect, then you'll never launch it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's much better to just get it out there. So we pushed it out very quickly and are iterating. I mean, my. My – back when I ran uh, the other website I ran, my my vision was essentially <laughs> I just want to publish stuff that I would like to read as a reader. I'm a pretty voracious reader. I have lots of far-flung interests and desires as a reader uh, and as – John Puthart had said this to me once a very long time ago. He said, you know, like every, gate, every great publication uh, is ultimately just a collection of the editor's private obsessions. Mm -hmm. And so this is why, you know, like I would have a lot of writing about comic books and tennis right. and things, you know. Uh, we're not quite there yet because we're still in startup mode. We're very politics focused right now. But essentially the answer is a bunch of things that I would like to read mm -hmm. and uh, focused around politics and hopefully with none of the chaff. I mean, just no – there won't be any filler. If there's a piece there, then it's probably a piece worth reading. Excellent. Well, I wish you all of the luck in the world. So – all right, let's do it. Let's get, get before we get to um, you know, I saw this great tweet on I saw this great thing on Twitter yesterday about a letter that the Klan wrote to some university, and they referred to the Catholic Notre Dame, and they referred to the Catholics as mackerel snapping anarchists. Yeah, and I haven't heard, it, that's it, us. It dawned on me. <laughs> it dawned on me. I hadn't heard mackerel snapping as a pejorative about. Papists in quite a long time, but that's um, a that's a throwback. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's 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 almost so nostalgic and so much of a throwback. It's kind of quaint. It's kind of you know, uh, like it's 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 exactly the kind of thing that you people could just own and just. I said I would be a great Catholic rock band name, right? I think they do. I think I mean, macro snapping is a that's what I kind of thought too. Like yeah. papists, the truth is the Catholics have adopted almost everything you could. 
almost every slur that was once used about them we yeah. now like totally unironically embrace. And but what's funny about the mackerel snapping thing is it's all about like you know eating fish on Fridays, right. or not, which is something that almost no Catholics do anymore. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. except during Lent. Yeah, you know, so it isn't even is, a is, real insult. But but popery, not the smelling stuff, right? The, yes. Yeah, the, the, Worshipping the prince in Rome kind of thing. If I say the word popery, that still has a pejorative connotation. Yeah, all of it does. Although, again, now for like real Orthodox Catholics who realize that we have our own Donald Trump as as head of the church. Right. Now, even that is sort of can ironically be embraced because we hate the pope. Mm-hmm. I can't say that really. We have lots of questions about this pope. Uh-huh. And so it is sort of fun to ironically be like, oh, yeah, no, no, we're big papists here. <laughs> yep. Love that Pope. So can you explain to me what is going on with uh, – so I was – I get a speech in, on Friday in Florida for the Values and Capitalism program here. And I sat next to dinner to my friend Patrick Deneen who I have more agreements with than a lot of people think I do and um, – but some significant disagreements with. But I like the guy. He's a good guy. And, um, and a bunch of people asked me about uh, – in hushed tones about my relationship with, um, what's his name? R.R. Reno. Rusty. Rusty Reno. Rusty Reno. And uh, why, why, why is like young Catholic egghead Twitter so vicious? Um, what is, what is, back up from that. What is going on in, in, in right-wing Catholic eggheadery right now that would help me understand it? Because it seems to me like I thought Reno's attack on me I think he had he began his review, which wasn't a review because he clearly didn't read my book. But he re- began a piece about me by saying that, sort of res- responding to something I had said about Trump and Trump's character, right? That I personify the decadence of um, American politics today, or something like that. And I thought. It was, I'm a weird target to personify decadence when defending Donald Trump. <laughs> um, but there's a there's something weird going on out there. And I don't quite understand it. I don't follow it as closely as I probably should. Um, do you follow this stuff all that closely? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to elevate Rusty by saying that he is right-wing Catholicism because the truth is that most of orthodox conservative Catholicism – is much more interested in the bishop problem right now than it is in Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rusty is this bizarre animal who somehow finds it possible to be totally in the tank for both Donald Trump and Pope Francis. Yeah. I don't know how you do that. And he's in the process of destroying one of like the last five great magazines in America. And so... You know, uh, for special... listeners who don't know, Rusty Reno is the um, editor of First Things. Yeah, which was like a truly great... Yeah. Intellectual journal before Rusty got his hands on it. Sort of the Catholic comment. Yeah, and is now like turned it into a joke. And he has surrounded himself with some sort of edgelord ultra trads who are themselves foolish and he runs embarrassing pieces that he has to apologize for but then doesn't apologize for. And it's – I don't know. If you care about magazines and ideas and stuff, like what he's done has been essentially like an intellectual war crime. Uh, But – that said, I, I don't think Rusty speaks for anybody but Rusty. Like uh-huh. there, there is no massive Catholic movement for Trump. There is Rusty and like the three people that he's assembled up in New York for Trump who are Catholics. And the rest of conservative Catholic world is much more wrapped up in like the Theodore McCarrick, uh-huh. Donald Worrell fights. Right. Uh, and that's, that's where all of the 
the moral and intellectual energy of the Catholic right is right now. And it's a weird place for these folks to be in because these are the people who have traditionally and even as recently as the last priest scandal eruptions of like you know, 10 or 15 years ago were on the side of saying – Hey, hold on now. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's not let's not go ascribing right. to the church the sins of a few priests. And they have, to their enormous credit, mm-hmm. I think, been presented with new evidence and have changed their views. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with the perceived political character of this or that bishop or this or that pope. Uh, it is purely that they believed that the bishops had – been exposed to whatever needed exposing to back 15 years ago and had changed their ways and now it is clear that they did not. Mm -hmm. And the problem at this point isn't even the priest abusers. The problem is people like Theodore McCarrick and then all of the bishops who knew about him, including Donald War. I don't know how much you, you yeah, really listeners care about this. I know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But, no, but so, I'm interested. You know, like Donald War, there's big news on this this yeah. week. Did you, did you see No, it? I didn't know about this week. So, so Worrell, who's formerly the cardinal of the Washington Archdiocese, had previously insisted that he had no idea that there was anything untoward about Theodore McCarrick, which was, and I wrote about this a few months ago, was either an admission of total stupidity or a flat lie. I mean, there's simply no way about it. Mm-hmm. And this week, we finally got documented proof that actually he did know. And so he now denied his prior denial and now says, look, no, 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 no. I, what I meant was that I had no knowledge that he had ever touched underage boys. <laughs> and what's really horrible about this is he is not only perjuring himself – essentially, but is enlisting the the actual apparatus of the Washington Archdiocese. I mean, there are comms. It's an office. There are mm. people in the office. There is a guy who works comms there who is now spitting out lies on behalf of this disgraced cardinal. And this is the type of stuff. I mean, the, I'm talking about a remnant. Like the Catholic Church is in enormous trouble right now. Uh, and you could even make the argument that every single person who has been a bishop for more than like two years ought to, ought to resign and they ought to simply start over. Because uh, things are not good. I mean, and this Key is where to a monastery kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. Because even if you didn't do anything yourself, even if you didn't cover up something else yourself, they all knew. Mm. You know, at some point, these guys were thirty-year-old priests yeah. on the line, and they were in the seminaries, and they heard the whispers. And it would take extraordinary courage, I think, to be a baby priest and to hear something about this, and then to run up to your superior who you know is actually on the wrong side of this anyway and mm-hmm. to try to blow the whistle because there would be no practical benefit to it, right? And so you mm-hmm. say to yourself, well, I'm just going to go along to get along now, but then I'll be a good bishop later. But that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. Like there has to be a price even for that. And uh, anyway, so that's where the real remnant is going to be. But that is where right-wing, to the extent that it is right-wing Catholicism is right now, it is not interested in Trump pumping. That is just a private project of Rusty. That's good to know because, I mean, someone had explained to me – that what Rusty Reno was up to was he met a whole bunch of ultra-traditional young people who were sufficiently ultra-traditional. They also didn't like capitalism. And he thought that this was going to be some new movement of that he could sort of ride. I mean, I think – and we can get off the Catholics, the Catholic stuff for a bit if you like, although I, I – I have to ask you at some point whether or not you sign on for the idea that the the Pope should have ninjas, but that's a different <laughs> issue. Obviously, yeah. I mean, uh, Ross Douthat always says, "What makes you think he doesn't already?" And I was like, "Because they're not doing cool ninja stuff all over the place." Well, but do you, they're invisible. Well, they were born in darkness. You only adopted it. 
I understand. I understand. We'll, we'll, we'll revisit this. Um, this the but um, um, this kind of ties now. Now I've lost my train of thought. Damn it. Um, but this kind of ties into uh, sort of where the right is right now, generally. And you and I have written a lot on the same theme about how Trumpism corrupts. You don't talk about this kind of stuff on the sub beacon. Never. No uh, politics. Yeah, no ever. Politics. We I don't, don't do politics. When I had when I did the special year ender with uh um what's that guy's name? Um Santino Bunch. Santino yeah. Bunch, the one who Yes. Yeah. Uh um the one even when he is well dressed looks like he's wearing a ten year old goldenrod corduroy jacket. Uh <laughs> did you by the way see the Photoshop of him yesterday? No. So he uh he did Morning Joe. Uh-huh. And they had like him in a box next to Scarborough and somebody photoshopped him to look like Palpatine. <laughs> and it's the most amazing. It's the greatest thing ever. Like with the full the throne and the black robes and everything. That's fantastic. Is, you guys do show notes, right, Jack? Yeah. yeah. yeah you yeah. should you should put the picture of Sonny as Emperor Palpatine in the show notes. But it was interesting because I mean Sonny actually knows a lot about a lot. And I asked him if he wanted to do any punditry or join in the conversation because we dragged Continetti in. And he was like, no, I don't want to talk about any punishment. And I thought that was kind of interesting because in Washington, usually when people are given the opportunity to opine, they opine and they don't hold back. But um, do you think things have sort of settled out? Do you think things are – like there was a time, say, a year ago where you didn't know where this stuff was going to go. It kind of feels like Powers Booth can be like throwing his coffee in the campfire because the battle lines have kind of settled out now. No? I don't know. Yeah. Uh... I mean, my my current obsession is the idea of a primary challenge, mm-hmm. and I. Do you think there will be one? I think it is more likely than not, right? Do you think there will be a successful one? That is highly unlikely. Yeah. Uh, just historically, of the nine, the the last nine presidents, sitting presidents, to seek election, uh, five of them have been challenged in the primaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we only think of primary challenges as exotic because the last three sitting presidents – this is a, a recency bias error, right? Mm-hmm. The last three presidents avoided him. Of those three who avoided them, Bush was immensely popular. Clinton didn't need a primary challenge because he was coming off of essentially a, a three-party – I mean right. there was already an alternative to him in the in the Perot people who had right. splintered off. Uh, and Obama, who really was totally vulnerable. People forget about this. 700 days in, he uh, – his popularity, his approval ratings were quite low. Uh, the difference was he had from a very – the very first moments of administration gone to great lengths to make sure that there wouldn't be a primary challenge. Mm-hmm. And that meant uh, following the basis priorities in terms of, of health care, doing everything it took to pass health care even though it was going to be problematic for him, uh, even in the face of stinging rebukes electorally in the, in the midterms. But he had stashed his most likely primary challenger in his cabinet. In Hillary Clinton. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. I mean, imagine that it is early 2011 and Obama's approval rating is sitting at 42 percent and the disapproved numbers on Obamacare are like 70, 28, which is about what they were. And Hillary Clinton is sitting in the Senate thinking, hmm, Smithers. You yeah, know? yeah, Like you could easily have seen your way to a primary challenge. Yeah. Trump – Although prim- if we're going to talk about yeah, the, yeah. the history of primary challenges – Primary challengers never get the nomination, do they? No, they don't. Uh, But they can set themselves up to succeed in the party. I mean, Ted Kennedy, 
nobody nobody held it against Ted Kennedy that he primary Jimmy Carter, right? right? And, and in fact, people really wish that he had uh, he had won. If you go and ask Democrats, yeah. uh, Ronald Reagan was not hurt for having challenged Gerald Ford. If you are a smart person and a real political entity, and not just a Ron Paul type crackpot challenger. You don't pay a penalty yeah, that's for an primary, point. yeah, um, because what you're doing is they're actually building your own movement and building your own brand. Yeah. Uh, so when you look at Trump. Trump's approved disapproved numbers have stayed within an eight point band for all 700 some days of his presidency, which is remarkable when you mm. when you look at the the swing. Most presidents have like a 20 to 25 point. Right. Band in which they inhabit, he's remarkably stable. And W's was like a seventy point, right? Thing, you know, right. That's not yeah. not, but you know, so was HW's. Yeah, right? you know, I mean, yeah, this yeah. is you know, events, events move, events can move a president, and events have not moved Trump. I mean, you know, so he gets as high as forty four percent, I think, twice maybe, uh, and as low as thirty five, thirty six percent, which has happened more than a handful of times. This is using like RCP average, or yeah, okay, yeah, because Rasmussen. He like I don't know he hit ninety or something. Yeah, no, um, <laughs> no but just looking at the RCP. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. That's right. Uh, and his his real if you sort of draw the the, the best fit line on this, yeah. about forty one and a half, forty two percent. Yeah. Uh, all of those things plus the fact that he has gone out of his way to antagonize his most likely challengers mm-hmm. suggest to me that if you if you wanted to bet five bucks on whether or not there would be a and again this is to take all shoulds mm-hmm. out of it, but right. just to look if we're if we're gambling on this, I would bet five bucks that we're going to get one. Yeah, this is we're we're talking is not ought. Yes, right. Um, yeah, I don't like talking about oughts yeah. all that much. I, I try to stick to ises. I'm all about the oughts. Yeah, but um, um, uh, so I have a standing bet that I've been making with people that I don't think Trump will be the nominee in 2020. But we can get to that in a second. The the, the part of the problem with the primary challenge thing, it seems to me is that the best people to challenge him in the primaries will not do it if they know it's a losing proposition, right? Mattis may be notwithstanding, right? But, you know, Nikki Haley has said she's not going to run against him. It's, I don't think it's – and in full disclosure, my wife works for Nikki Haley. I'm a big fan of Nikki Haley's. I would love to see Nikki successfully primary Donald Trump. I would love to see lots of people successfully primary Donald Trump. So when when we say that Trump is unlikely to be successfully primaried, I, I would just highly unlikely to be successful. I would say this: if we go back three years, and I say to you, one of these two things that I'm putting in front of you is going to happen: either Donald Trump is going to become president, or the next sitting president is going to be successfully challenged in the primaries. Which right. would you think would be more likely? Yeah, yeah no, that's totally that, that is totally fair. That's right. totally fair. But yeah. I mean, one of the things that messes this up, which is sort of like um, what you were saying about. Um, I can't remember if it was Obama or, or or Bush, but historically, the primary challenge comes from someone claiming to represent the true base, right? Whether it's Pat Buchanan, um, whether it's what's his face in '68, McCarthy, mm-hmm. and the person who challenges Trump would have to come from sort of married suburban republican moderate world right because yes which is not necessary which i would argue is kind of is the true base of the republican party but we've kind of forgotten that because of the way parts of conservatism inc have taken over the base of the republican party i just it does break the model to imagine raging moderates pouring into new hampshire and iowa to challenge donald Trump. i would agree 
I would agree with that. Uh, and that's what Trump is hanging his hat on. He's hanging his hat on his base approval numbers, which are higher than any of the last five incumbent presidents, I think. Yeah. Uh, here's, here's the problem, though. The problem is that uh, you see, think about the power centers within a party, right? And Trump has helped actually by the midterm wipeout in the House. Sure. Because the House caucus is now much Trumpier. Yeah. Uh, Something I was predicting on this this podcast. Certainly. Well, this is what always happens, right? When you have a, a massively unpopular president, the people who pay the price for it first are not the people who are most behind his agenda, right. but the people exactly. who are the margins. Yeah. Uh, Steve the, King was the one Republican to win re-election. Right. No, no. Like, right. So Steve yeah. King is in the House and Mia Love yeah. isn't, right? right? I mean, this is what's crazy about it. But what happens now, though, is you look to the Senate and the Senate map is incredibly unfavorable for Republicans going into 2020. And if... I would say if you look at – so if Trump stays where he is now, he will not be reelected, re- right? At 41 and 42 percent, he is not even running against Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. His chances of drawing to an inside straight error are incredibly small. So for him to win, he has to either move up quite a lot or not move down. Which would you say looking at the, the array, the basket of goods which are sitting in front of us for the next 20 months – which seems to you more likely, that he could gain five points in the poll average in a sustained way or that he could lose five? I would say with the Mueller investigation coming due, with all the weaknesses in the economy, with the instability of foreign events, mm. much more likely that he could lose space. And if all of a sudden we're looking at a Trump who is at 39 percent or so in the average and not 41 mm-hmm. and the Senate, the Republicans are looking at losing eight Senate seats yeah. in addition, that is a moment where the – the center of the party and the, the power structure of the party could possibly start to try to exert pressure on him not to run. Johnson, like the big question for me when you look at this, again, in, in the sort of analytical, not the prescriptive mm-hmm. sense, is does one challenger make more challengers more or less likely? Right. So let's say uh, the first person to jump in is not a super serious challenger. Let's pretend it is a Gary Johnson type figure or mm-hmm. somebody like that, right? Uh, does that presence make it more or less likely that Jim Mattis jumps in, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what what happens if you have a couple guys running, Trump is steamrolling through the primaries, but all of a sudden the bottom is dropping out because the Mueller report is really bad. You know, he's at 35% nationally or 36% nationally. I mean, at some point, does Nikki Haley have to come in just to rescue the party and to, to make sure the party itself isn't reduced to like 35 Senate seats? Yeah, that, that is the um, only argument politically again and this is very much an is not ought thing uh given the givens of my situation that is the only argument in which i can see her it has to be sort of break glass in case of emergency yeah and it's a more and in sor- it's more in sorrow than in anger it is not right. that it is look guys it may be unfair i work for him i supported him but we got to save the party and that you have to save the party and at that point you have to look to try to get him not to oh, again like with johnson i would say johnson is is the model here uh people forget that johnson won the New Hampshire primary by like 10 yeah. points. <laughs> yeah, no, this idea that like you can't. So, uh, you know, does more. And I am open to the idea, the traditional thinking on this is that the fact of a primary challenge hurts the incumbent president always. Uh, I'm open to the possibility that that's not true mm-hmm. uh, in this case and that for Trump, him beating up on John Kasich for three months while the Democrats are in the midst of their own Game of Thrones Red wedding here could help Trump by yep. making him look strong, by keeping him fighting in the, news. the establishment. He's he's doing what he does best. I mean, the truth is, what he does best is not beating up on Democrats. It's yeah. beating up on Republicans. Yeah. That's that's his natural mode. That's what he likes to do. It's what he's best at. Um, 
when he pushes back on Democrats is where he actually gets into dangerous territory where he can say things that are really terrible and can actually right. hurt him. So it could be that a primary challenger could wind up helping him. I wouldn't I wouldn't bet the farm on that if I was his campaign manager. If I was Kellyanne, I would not be hoping for one, uh, but would try be trying to sort of war game out how we might be able to turn a minus into a positive. If it is a certain type, if it's Jeff Flake, is there a way to make this a projection of strength on his part in wrestling? You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're a professional uh, wrestling guy, right? You know what a squash match is? I feel like I did at one point. It's a, a type of so when you are establishing a new character in mm-hmm. wrestling. Uh, one of the – especially when it is a big overpowering character, a King Kong Bundy type or something. So they would set up a squash match, which is you have a new guy. The audience has never seen him before. He's this big angry-looking dude. You bring him in to fight some tomato can. And instead of trying to give people an entertaining match, you give them the shortest pos- – like a 15-second. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. the one guy runs at him, right. King Kong Bundy, flows him to the ground, does a big splash on him and knocks him out one, two, three. And the idea is to make – you're trying to build – get him over. Yeah, parlance yeah. of the industry uh, as being a real heavy. Yeah, it could be that having a squash match against Jeff Flake would be helpful to Trump. Sure, I'm not sure. I wouldn't bet it. The bigger danger, though, is that having Jeff Flake in the race invites other people. Right, a telegraph's weakness, especially if his national numbers are really bad. Yeah. The flip side, also though, is that uh, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, um, these were people who listen to party elders in part because party elders were a thing right uh you have a, you have a two-edged problem with the trump scenario one is and i'm not going to repeat this argument because i made it a million times on this podcast but the parties are just unbelievably weak they basically don't exist yes. right yes so and second of all trump hates the republican party yes. <laughs> and so the idea that you're going to get i don't know reince priebus and Haley Barber or whoever no, it has to be march cocaine up to the White House and convince Trump of anything. No. Right? So it has to be cocaine Mitch and cocaine Mitch has to make it an argument from interest. Right. Right. I mean it can't be like, oh, for the good of the party. Right. Really, it has to be uh, if you go through with this, your legacy, you will be remembered as a joke. Your children will be – have no political future whatsoever. You are going to wind up getting prosecuted. I mean you, you have to essentially try to – push him out of the job. You cannot appeal to him as, you know, to his better angels because Trump doesn't have better angels. All he has is transactionalism. Right. So you have to make a – and I don't think that that is an impossibility. It certainly is hard. Yeah, and, well, I also think we, Trump doesn't like the job anymore, right? And he doesn't seem to enjoy it all that much. And But you couldn't do it from the, this fact the way they are now. I would say at 41 or 42 percent, that is a sustainable enough place where he could say, nah, well, you know, I mean, pollsters don't know anything. Maybe right. I do fine. And he loses by seven points and the Republicans lose eight seats. I mean, you could – and then all of a sudden you have the president, Democrat X – Pushing through an emergency, you know, declaring a state of emergency over climate change and starting a Green New Deal. I mean, it really is not hard to, oh, yeah, to see how you get to there. Yeah. So sociologically, right, there are um, – I don't know if you call yourself Never Trump. I don't call myself Never Trump anymore. I don't. I hate, I hate the whole Never Trump appellation more than I could possibly tell you. Yeah, I, I think it's – to me, it's very much like neocon. It's mostly used by people – who just want an invidious label so that they can hang everything they want on top of. It's um, a form of virtue signaling and all virtue signaling is bad. Yeah. It's, it's the, the anti-Trump equivalent of the people who turn their Twitter icons green during the Iranian yeah, yeah, attempted yeah, yeah, revolution. Yeah. You know, like it's look, you are what you are. You think what you think. And Well, I mean, I, I, I minded it less 
when there was a live proposition about the guy was running for president, right? But then afterwards, I mean, I wrote, you know, I'm not a never Trumper anymore because that it's a meaningless term now. But there are, let's put it this way. So the question I want to ask is, I know a bunch of people, I won't out them, um, who are basically in the same broad category of Trump skeptical, anti-Trump, whatever, but not, you know, Jen Rubin or, or Rick Wilson or Max Boot, right? That still actually... I mean, I don't want to be unfair to to Wilson, but yeah, don't you know, be unfair to Rick. He's a good guy. Honestly. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah. But um, um, but have not forced themselves into a wear a dunce, dunce cap in Tiananmen Square and um, renounce all of their conservative positions because they overlap somewhat with Trump, right? right. Um, so conservative Trump skeptics, anti-Trump, whatever, and. And the consensus among a bunch of people I know, including some people at you know Fox who are in the weeds and know where the, the viewers are, is that no matter how disastrously the Trump presidency may or may not turn out, we will never be forgiven that it will – that the, the – for want of a better label, the – I mean, Ann Coulter is a complicated case. But the sort of the talk radio crowd, the, the, the sort of – entertainment crowd, a lot of the Fox personalities, they'll pick their moment and say, ah, this is, you know, sort of like, remember when um, all of a sudden all these liberals at the very end of the Clinton administration were outraged by the Mark Rich pardons? You know, <laughs> and they were like, that's the thing that tipped yeah, it over. And it, was, it only happens to have anything to do with the fact that they're like going to be in office for another five minutes. I mean, he's literally on his way out the door and it's like, this is where I reestablish my nonpartisan intellectual and moral credibility. And the theory is, is that at the last minute, they'll say, oh, he didn't build the wall or, you know, you know, that when he made Mike Pence eat a bowl of dog shit in the Oval Office on live television, that was a bridge too far for me. Right. And then they'll be they'll say I supported him when he needed supporting. But, you know, I have my principles and those people will all get off scot free and they'll be recognized as decent and honorable people. And the people like you and me and a bunch of other of our friends, we stabbed him in the back. We're the reason he failed. Um, it's the Dolschluss or whatever they call it in German, right? And we are the ones who are the authors of all of this. And if only we had jumped on board the train earlier, it would have been a united front and we would have saved the day. What do you think about all that? As an analytical matter, I think it's almost certainly correct. Yeah, I mean, I won't bother pointing out like the insanity of the position, which right. after the the Trump humpers have spent like three years saying you guys are pathetic, there are none of you, you don't matter, and then all of a sudden he would have succeeded if not for you people, right? But this is what they always do with everything. Um, the no, the entertainment wing of conservative Inc will be fine to the extent that it can be fine based on demographics. I mean, right. this is not a 20-year career. Most of the people there who are doing this don't need to be paying, drawing paychecks for 20 years. They only need to do it for another 10 or 15. Um, I would not want to be Kaylee McInerney mm -hmm. because there is not a long-term career in that because those people are all dying. I mean, just as a demographic no, absolutely, matter. That's absolutely like you, right. You, know, you yeah. look at them and uh, you know Trump does really, really well with – uh, white men over the age of 65 whose life expectancy is like, you know, another 12 years. Yeah. I think that it is likely we, we, uh, you people, mm -hmm. you famous people who didn't get on board will never be forgiven. I, I get off in a way because I'm not famous and nobody really cares who I am. Uh, I care. And well, I appreciate that. Uh, you're, 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 you're a man of some renown in some important circles. Niche, deep niches. Uh huh. Uh, there's a, there's a thread on Twitter. 
where I am a god. <laughs> uh, but you, you will be hated precisely for being right. And that's the problem. Uh, and the, 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 I spent a lot of time thinking about this, obviously. The reason that it is weird, just objectively speaking, the extent to which the Trumpists are obsessed with conservatives who didn't get on board with Trump. Oh, yeah. yeah. Welcome to my world. They have <laughs> – no, no. But they have nothing to say about the left. They have nothing to say about Democrats. It is entirely – into, and the reason is, of course, it's a classic projection, because they know what they did. Mm-hmm. They understand what they did. They know what they should have done. They're incredibly compromised. And the very fact of conservatives who didn't get on board is a rebuke, right? It is highlighting the compromises that they chose to make. Uh, and they don't get to do it from within. The, you know, if everybody did it, then they're safe within the herd. And it's just – I mean it, I would say this. It has always been interesting to me. I was, I was never Romney mm-hmm. once upon a time. I and mean, I really, I really don't like Mitt Romney as a political mm-hmm. actor. Uh, I have all sorts of like deep and complicated problems with him. Who's the, your guy? I don't have a guy. Okay. You know, I, there, I have one guy in all of politics, you know, Ben Sass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, a friend of this podcast. Right. But otherwise, that's it. I mean, they're all scoundrels. My, my general view is uh, that if you are in love with any politician – then you're a fool because they're all phonies. They're all fakes. They all, I mean, this is – if you aren't jaundiced about every single one of them, then you're just a mark. Well, in, in fairness, because this is something I talk about a lot, you know, Bill Rusher, longtime publisher of National Review, he always take the young writers aside and say, politicians will always disappoint you. Yeah. And his point was not necessarily that they're all grifters and bad people, but it's that the incentive structure for a politician – is simply by its nature, and he would stipulate many are right. You know, sure. sure. But but it's also just the incentive structure by its nature means that politicians are going to behave in ways that are going to disappoint firebrand twenty four year olds. You know, writing for National Review that we'll see as compromises. Yes, right? and. At best. At best. And that's a best case scenario. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. So even for the good ones, every now and then, I mean, like, look at, I've generally had a soft spot in my heart for Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham's behavior over the last 10 days um, has been quite disappointing. And I don't think it's because he's a bad person. I think it's that the incentive structure and the whirlwind that he is in and the games that he's playing to stay on the right side of Trump and all that are making him say and do things that I think Lindsey Graham of six months ago or six years ago would be mortified by. Yeah. I would agree with that. Uh, but all, all of which is to say that uh, when I was anti-Romney, nobody cared. Right. Like, and, and there, were, there were dozens of us. Like there were, there were, <laughs> there, no, it was not a movement. There was not a never-Romney caucus. But there were a lot of people who just said, this is ridiculous. This is what the Republican Party is putting forward. Uh, there was – I mean in a, in a weird way, like I wanted a much more populist-type mm-hmm. uh, Republican Party. I, wanted, I was a sort of reformer con type. I thought the, the Bain Capital stuff was actually quite troubling. I wrote about yeah. this all the time. There was never any pushback of why can't you just get on board? Why can't you get over? It is unique to Trump. Mm-hmm. And I can't think – I mean there were there were people who couldn't get on board with Reagan, right? Mm-hmm. There were people who pushed back really hard against H.W. Bush, right? There was – I have never seen this sort of cult-like thing mm-hmm. uh, in American politics. And maybe you have. Maybe, maybe – Well, there, was a, there were bits and pieces of it oddly enough – 
you could object to George H.W. Bush's program and rail against the president yeah. and from, a, from the right and nobody would come out and accuse you of being a libtard traitor or blah, 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 right, blah, right. blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, certainly the differences of degree in this time around are such that there are differences in kind. But there, was, there were touches of this with Sarah Palin to be sure. There were touches of this – I remember Rich Lowry and I talked about this every now and then. There was like a six-week period – where if you didn't understand why Fred Thompson was going to save this country, you didn't get it, were a monster and an idiot, fellow-traveling, left-wing, Shackmanite, whatever. I mean, it was, like, bizarre. And then it it went away because the way Fred Thompson, who I liked, but... I, I was on the Thompson bandwagon. Yeah, you know, I, I, I like Fred Thompson. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not criticizing, but it was just, like... But, like, he then... You know, the best day he had was the day before he actually announced, because yeah. then he ran a campaign... Like he was part of the duo from the old Bartles and James commercials. He just sat on a porch going, do, 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 and it didn't do anything, you know. But no, I, I, I agree with that. And I, I, it's weird, in part because I think Trumpism, anytime people talk about Trumpism as an ideological thing, it drives me crazy. No, it's not. It's purely a psychological phenomenon. Absolutely. Both on the part of the man himself and his biggest fans. And yes. and so part of it, and maybe it's because I have some personal family history with some of this, um, but it's it's like he's... It's like he's got a substance abuse problem. And I don't mean the way he behaves or his sniffles or any of that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, with my brother, when my brother, you know, who died several years ago, but um, when he was like, if he got his day back, to, if he got his life back together, even briefly um, with his problems, with his demons and all that, you know, my, particularly my father would be like, today's the, it's the first day of the rest of his life. Let's get him on, he's going to get jobs, he's gonna, everything's going to be great, blah, blah, blah. And... If you criticize them or, you know, it's like you see this with like some Irish families too, which is like you, if you defend the the son who's the biggest problem, people get outraged. You know, loved ones get outraged. And so like I'm in like day week three, I wrote a column saying that Donald Trump is a man of bad character, which I think is incandescently obvious, right? And I've been challenging people for two years now. Come up with a definition of good character that Donald Trump can clear. Forget the sexual stuff. That's one definition, right? He's a bad guy in business. He's not loyal. Um, he doesn't do his homework. He's not diligent. He's not, uh, doesn't believe in, you know, uh, just general good manners. I mean, you just can't come up with a good, with a, a serious one. And it drives these people crazy. So I wrote a column saying, every time I say this, it drives these people crazy. And then for the next, next three weeks, it's driving them crazy. And I, I have lost count of how many times American greatness has gotten its, its dress over its head about this. Uh, yesterday, Real Clear Politics wrote this asinine, incredibly embarrassing, stupid piece, rushing in to sort of defend Roger Kimball's two or so rounds going against me on this. And it, to me, it's a tell, right? It's, it's, it's that, you know, it infuriates David Horowitz when I say Donald Trump has a bad character. I mean, if things were going great, they wouldn't care. That's right. Right. I mean, if things were going great, then they would be out there marching from success to success. I mean, I, I really do wonder this. When... When people on the Trumpy side say, I mean, well, of course, he's just been incredibly successful. Uh, do they really believe that? Because the presidency, I think, from any objective standpoint, has been to date, doesn't mean it will continue to be, but to date, a massive failure. Uh, one of the biggest midterm losses of the last 50 years, a single legislative achievement, and the, that legislative achievement is the same tax cut that Mitt Romney would have done. Right. I mean, it is the worst of the the, the Wall Street 
if you don't like the traditional country club, Republican, chamber of commerce types, as I do not, that was the worst of all worlds. You yeah. think to yourself, wait a minute, I thought this is what we were bringing the great disruptor in to, to break up is this sort of stuff. Uh, and then you've got your your two judicial appointments and a bunch of derags. But uh, judicial – people seem to believe that the Supreme Court is frozen in amber and that none of these people is ever going to die suddenly. Mm. And that's insane, yeah. right? I mean you know, the idea that like, oh, well, you have protected the court for 20 years by getting a seat. No, you haven't. You've protected it until the next guy dies, right, out of order. Right. And this, this sort of thing happens as we all saw with, with Antonin Scalia. And anything that you don't do legislatively is going to get undone by the next guy. It's not – if you don't get Congress to vote on it, then it doesn't count because the next guy from the right. team blue is going to undo it. And so Particularly people, if you invoke emergency powers and create that precedent. And you know. I mean for – to have unify if, – if Trump had been fighting with one hand tied behind his back because, you know, it would have been a Democratic House or a Democratic Senate and, you know, when he was – then OK. Then you can say, OK, well, this maybe isn't so bad. But when you have unified control of government with a guy who's supposed to disrupt the entire political system and all you get is that tax cut out of it, that's it? Yeah. I mean I just don't understand how you look at that. Again, just objectively. I'm not trying to project my own value judgments onto this and say, oh, yeah, no, this is exact. This is what I signed up for. Well, so, okay, so I, I would actually defend the Trump administration a little bit more. I thought the energy, I think some of the energy stuff was good. I mean, someone who's invested in the subject of Anwar, that was kind of amazing that it happened and no one noticed. Um, but I think on net, you're right. Um, but this sort of brings me back to the, and I don't want to drag Tucker into this again, but the Tucker Wars, right, or the populism wars. My biggest problem with all that is that the way. So you're you're basically describing yourself as sort of a Rick Santorum kind of guy, not necessarily the man, but Catholic working class, uh, uh, pop, somewhat populist, Main Street, not Wall Street, right? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm basically a communist. Yeah. I mean, if we we're going to like drill all the way down to it, yeah, I'm, I'm a squish on all of the economic stuff. Yeah, that's fine to the highest degree. My problem is is that, and this gets back to the psychological phenomenon part of it, that. The way the the true base of the GOP, you know, the hardcore supporters of Donald Trump, I wish they defined their self-interests through a Marxian analysis. You know, I wish they were like, it is all about, you know, my paycheck. It is all about my entitlements. It is all about recognizing, you know, my economic interests, right? Instead, the way... They define their interests is because they've made an investment in the prestige of Donald Trump. And so right now we're in the middle of a government shutdown that is screwing farmers, right, who now can't get the bailout checks to help them for the thing that they were screwed for because of the trade war stuff, right? Yep. And and the argument everywhere on the sort of Trumpified right and in the prime time on Fox News is Trump is fighting for these people. These people are the ones that are getting the most screwed. And you would think if if among the people – I can't tell you how many people I've met who say, look, I'm not a, really a Donald Trump fan, but I love his people and I want to defend his people and all the rest. Why, there's not a single one of these people who ever when forced to choose between defending the glory of um, Donald Trump and defending the actual interests of these supposedly forgotten men, downtrodden voters – ever make the choice of defending the interests of those voters. And in part because that's not what those voters want anymore. Those voters yes. want 
Caesar to be praised, even if Caesar's not good for those people. They are for whatever Trump is for at the moment he is for it. And they will be for tariffs while he is for it. And if he then says, you know, actually tariffs are a bad idea, they'll ah, tariffs are terrible. Uh, that's exactly correct. Uh, the, what makes it you – know, I, I keep – everyone will go, why are you condescending to Trump voters? Well, because these are people but really deserve to be condescended to. Uh, they're such marks that they have sort of taken – oh, yeah, well, it's really about the wall. The wall is so important. Well, if the wall is so GD important, why didn't you do it first out of the gate? Mm -hmm. You had unified control of the government. You had Paul Ryan coming with a plan on, well, we're going to have a border assessment tax. But, and the answer is – Trump doesn't think it's important. Right. I mean, this is, he used to joke he about – He thinks important. I don't even know if he thinks Ann is important anymore. Uh, I mean, he used to joke about how he just, you know, whenever he saw the audience getting bored during his rallies, he'd mention the wall. Yeah. It's just a prop. And now he's, he's sort of gesturing towards it in a way which he knows is highly unlikely to ever get a wall. He has created this thing and he knows that they know. And his his calculation is, eh, it doesn't matter because these people are just here for me. And he's right about that. He's, I would say I can't think of another American president with the possible exception of Obama who believed correctly that their people were there for them mm -hmm. and not for any policy agenda, program or larger institution. Uh, and he is right about that. I mean he's created the first genuinely true cult of personality – in the political sphere in America, I think, ever, in a well, way that really eclipses the Kennedy stuff or the Obama stuff. Certainly even. in our lifetimes, right? I mean, I, 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 I want to hold judgment on, like, say, William Jennings Bryant. Well, that's the other – I would say the only, <laughs> the only possible exception yeah. is Bryant. But it's – so it's funny. I, I write about this a bit in my book. Ace of Spades, who I have to give credit for, even though he's not a huge fan of mine these days, he wrote this wonderful essay, which I've picked up on a few times – Call on the MacGuffinization of politics. And I think there's something deeply profound in it, right? As you know better than I do because you're more of a film guy than I am, MacGuffin is just the thing the hero wants, right? Mm -hmm. And Ace had pointed out that under Obama, Obama wanted DACA. But he said he couldn't do it because it's not my power, right? And I'm not a king. I'm not a monarch. I said it 24 times. And then one day he says, never mind. I'm doing it anyway. And not a single member of the mainstream media did anything but applaud because they were covering Obama like he was the hero. And so the coverage was Republicans pounce, right? Republicans are mad, blah, 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 blah. Even though when they were paying attention to Obama saying that all those other times, they presumably agreed with him that he didn't have the constitutional power to do it, right? Right. But when you follow politics as if it's a form of entertainment, you just want the hero to win. Right. And that's, I think, the problem that Trump has gotten himself into the, with the wall. The wall is now his MacGuffin. Yes. And he needs to come up with another script, another plot line for the hero if he d isn't going to get this MacGuffin. And the longer the shutdown goes, the harder that script is going to be to write. Well, I, my theory is that he needs the courts to bail him out of this. So he can't let the Democrats win because the Democrats never win. Trump is the one who always wins. Right. Uh, unless it's the dirty, unfair judges. Right. Or the system. Or the right. deep state. system. Or the deep, right. right. And so that's why I actually think the most likely outcome is he does declare the emergency and then – but does it full well knowing that the courts are likely to stop yeah. it and overturn it. And, sort of a stop me before I kill again. Yeah. All right. So, so very quickly, um, you also did a scorecard um, over at the Bulwark and we'll have it in the show notes. Um, your, your first rundown of the democratic field. 
I haven't written that yet. You haven't written that? No. What did I read then? You did that for the standard. Oh, I apologize. You did it for the standard. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually writing one for the Bulwark for next week. But uh, Can we give us a preview? Do you have any strong opinions or you want to keep your powder dry? Uh, I don't have any strong opinions yet. Okay. So, uh, but I'd be, happy to have your entire... I'd be happy to have your opinions. I mean, I, I'm very <laughs> interested in the the way the field is shaping up so aggressively um, and so traditionally is interesting to me. Uh, I expected to have some sort of answer to Trump, which is to say celebrity outsiders, mm-hmm. be it Trump or Carly Fiorina or – I mean the Republicans had been dancing in this direction for a couple cycles now, right, with the idea of, well, maybe we'll just do somebody who's not a politician. Democrats have been. The Republicans have yeah, been, yeah. right? So so we had uh, – who is 999, right? Herman Cain, Herman Cain. right? I mean, this has been, had been a thing sort of quietly mm-hmm. building. Ross Perot had basically been a – and I had expected to have some – form of that on the Democratic side, uh, some celebrity who just thought, huh, why not me? Well, and but the nice thing about being a celebrity is you can do it later than everybody else can because everyone knows who you are already. Yes, but nobody even seems to be looking at it so hard, right? There was the Oprah boomlet yeah. when people thought maybe Oprah would run. The Rock? I think he's quasi oh, – yeah, well, uh, who, who knows what the right, – yeah. who, who isn't a fan of Dwayne Johnson? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, I would say the the Tulsi Gabbard, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris. I mean, it is all the usual suspects. It is everybody you would think it would be, which itself is so conventional that it surprises me a little bit. Bernie is the big question, right? I mean, I mean if Bernie wants to run, I think it's very it, the chances are that he is the nominee. Yeah. Hmm. I'm not sure. But what maybe, I, maybe. but here's here's why. What I really think about is do the Democrats have the same intra-party hatred problem that the Republicans had, right? I mean the, the, what Trump revealed is Catherine Miller's great formulation is that well, Trump's – the genius of Trump is that he reveals things about mm-hmm. the world around him. And Trump revealed that there was a huge chunk of the Republican Party who neither believed any of the things that the Republican Party said it believed in uh, nor liked the Republican Party. Yeah. You know, that really just wanted to like blow it all up. And I think you could probably say the same about the Sanders candidacy. Like mm-hmm. the Sanders candidacy in 2016 was a rejection of mainstream democratic principles and a rejection of the Democratic Party itself, right? The party wanted to nominate Hillary Clinton, who was a reasonably conventional, reasonably moderate by modern standards Democrat. Uh, and they brought in a socialist who nobody had ever heard of and he basically got more votes than she did. Um, is that rift within the Democratic Party healed or is – you know, with a giant – that God knows we could have 11 or 17 Democrats running or is somebody – goes over 20 and then goes back down very quickly. Yeah, but do – or do you have somebody coming in like Ocasio-Cortez? I mean this is what I – I'm actually in the middle of writing a piece about why Ocasio-Cortez really is Trump, um, which will make everybody on both sides mad. Um, but what she understands is the, the disaffection within the party for the party. Mm-hmm. I mean, she really – and she spends half her time beating up on other Democrats in mm-hmm. the same way that Trump spends almost all of his time beating up on other Republicans. Uh, what happens to that market within the primary uh, and who is going to come in and try to fill that? Like Avenatti, before he got pinched for mm-hmm. for whatever he got pinched for doing, was for serious going to go and try to do that. And I actually did not think it was a joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I thought there was a lot of room for somebody – to come in and do that and to be the but he fights, mm-hmm. um, which is, by the way, what 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez does. Like she fights. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is she, – she is a dominance politician in exactly the same way that Trump is. Uh, but she also understands – I keep writing this column, but this negative partisanship thing, right? That she is great at it's, – it's not just good enough to say it's trolling, right? She understands that the more – in an era of negative partisanship, the more the other side hates you, the more your side loves you. Yes. And so I – I don't want to make a baseless accusation because I have zero evidence, but I would not be shocked in the slightest if her team leaked that dancing video, that anonymous thing where she's dancing in college or whatever. And it was brilliantly done in the sense that everyone said conservatives were mocking her because that's how the tweet was written. But no conservatives were mocking her. I mean, except they were. We had a we had a piece about this, and we had a yeah. bunch. There were there were conservatives. Oh, were there? Were okay, but not a lot, right? But it was a brilliant yeah. way. My point is, it, either way, it would not shock me if she released it herself as a way to sort of bait people. And she does this quite frequently, where she just invites opprobrium from the other side, and it elevates her. And then she gets all of these friends who come out and say, look, it's, it's, it's AOC derangement syndrome, which helps build the, you know, the, the dynamic even more. Yeah. I mean, it is funny to think that she could wind up being a kingmaker. Right. Uh, she can't run primary. for president herself. She can't run for president herself. Uh, and you can imagine that the person, the, the endorsement that will be the single most sought after endorsement yeah. this cycle on the Dem side That's will be her. I hadn't thought about Not that. Hillary Clinton. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Hillary Clinton will be the kiss of death, right? Nobody's going to want yeah. The Clinton endorsement, which is itself interesting. Yeah. You would never have thought. That's interesting. Uh, but it's going to be the 29-year-old former bartender who everybody is going to want her out campaigning with them uh, and elevating them. See, but that – so this is why I think thing, everything is going to get so much more stupid. I mean, yes. everything, right? Oh, yes. This is why when you, we started out with, you know, have things sort of settled and normalized, and I don't think they have. Yeah. Uh, I think that we, we still – have not achieved the moment where we understand what the true fallout of the midterm elections are, right? Because we don't have the investigations starting sure. within the, the Democratic House. Uh, we don't know what the landscape will look like if there is a primary challenger. And we don't know how the incentive structure of the Democratic primary is going to shake out. I mean, talk about incentives, right? I mean, you were going to have people essentially uh, incentivized to go crazy in order to stand out mm -hmm. on the Democratic side, right? I mean, what are they, they going to say to get people to pay attention to them? Uh, and the really interesting thing is you'll have, I think, a real tension between what is good for the Democratic House versus what is good for Democratic presidential candidates, mm -hmm. right? And so somebody is going to have to be the impeachment candidate, who is going to – I mean the thing – you can imagine the idiocy of it, right? They're going to be running for president, calling for the impeachment of the guy who's president who if they are successful won't be in office anyway. Right. Right. I mean it, it makes no sense except that I, I bet you anything that there is going to be a huge market for somebody who essentially says, why aren't the Democrats impeaching this terrible bad orange man? Mm -hmm. uh, and there's going to be other stuff, right? So if Medicare for all is now the entry point for democratic politics, like how do you stand out? What is, is the green – I mean have we in a weird way already vaulted over Medicare for all where now the Green New Deal yeah. is the price of admission and you have to be on board with that? I mean that's crazy because we haven't even gotten to Medicare for all and right. the one place where they've tried out in California has been proved to be just simply unworkable because it's right. too expensive. But this is what I'm saying. I mean, yeah, yeah. everything is unstable. It'll be interesting to see. 
Yeah, uh, in fairness to to me, I was talking about on the right. Oh, on the right. Okay, yeah, about yeah. things have settled out. We know where the battle lines are. We know anybody who's going to flip to become Trumpy has happened already. Everybody who's going to hold their ground has happened already for the most part. You know, um, I I would lay money that if Trump is the nominee, uh, there will be a handful of former Trump skeptics who say that this bad person over here on the Democratic side is a bridge too far and so I'm going ben, to Trump. Ben Shapiro. Um, you know, and there will be – I mean look, if I was trying to square that circle, if I was trying to square that circle, what I would say is, look, in 2016, he was an unknown commodity and everybody thought the danger was he would blow up the world. Well, he didn't blow up the world. Mm. Right. I mean, if you want to get to that from from A to B, yeah, I think yeah, the yeah. way to do it is is that yeah. way. I I am unlikely to do that myself, but uh, but I can see how the argument would be made. Did you see this Kamala Harris video? Her uh, state of the funk, funk of the union. I don't know. It's put up by Stephen Colbert. It was on Twitter this morning, and it's just her running through these questions about you know that you know that compensatory clip she came out with to compete with AOC. The dancing thing. The dancing thing. Yeah. Just sort of grooving in her chair. This is a this is that on steroids times ten. And it makes me want to cut myself. I just I, I don't like grown ups showing how hip and cool they are. It's like watching your parents dance to Muzak at the shopping center. You know, just it's uncomfortable making. And I don't care if it's left or right. And one of the things that's charming about Cortez is she pulls it off, right? But for the most part, I hate that stuff. And this is it's it's a little like when Rubio was bragging about what rap he listens to and all that kind of thing. It just in part because I'm not a I, I I despise the cult of youth when politicians want to show how with it they are. I would much rather they would talk about how they can explain what the defenestration of Prague is than what. Yeah, so I I wrote about this last week when Beto uh-huh. went and Instagram lived his his dental cleaning. Yeah, right. right. Uh, so politicians make the the same Which stupid gave me an imitative idea for my upcoming colonoscopy, but that's a different yeah. <laughs> make the same stupid uh, like imitation mistakes that everybody does in, in business. They they think oh well, what's cool is the Instagramming live of your dental thing, and that's not what's cool. Right. What's cool is Beto O'Rourke. Right. Right, and you don't have to like him. You don't have to think he'd be a good president. You don't have to like, look. He's a cool guy. Uh, Alexandra Ocasio Cortez is a cool chick. Mm-hmm. Like she's. I mean, these are just yeah. cool people. And them, Instagram. You know, her Instagram videoing herself while she's doing laundry is not what makes her cool. It's the other way around. Right, right, right. right? I mean, Mitch McConnell could not be made cool by going to the dentist and live streaming this. Yeah. And this is the mistake that like Kamala Harris is making, I think. You know, the idea that you have to engage in that same arms race. No, you don't. What you're selling is something very different. You should realize what it is you're selling. I don't know exactly what she is yeah. selling except that she is a grown-up and a responsible human being who fits a certain demographic profile and why shouldn't she be president? Yeah. Which isn't crazy, by the way. Like that that could very well be a, a meaningful thing. But the the pursuit of cool and the, especially online and social media, it just drives me crazy. And yeah. I – it's even hard to pull off in an ironic way, right? I think that's what Elizabeth Warren was going for was like – and in the same way like people were ironically used to wear like trucker hats. Right. And they were before they stopped doing it ironically and it was just like, oh, trucker hats are doing the new cool. Uh, it's, it's bad. People, politicians don't need to be cool. 
uh, an uncool politician can beat a cool politician. Yeah. This is a thing that happens all the time. Ron Paul, Bernie Sanders are not cool people. No. <laughs> right. I mean, you can – but it's just a mistake to try to compete yeah. on, the, on the same ground there. And doing it doesn't make you cool. You should embrace – you should embrace what you are as a political commodity. It's like my one piece of like campaign manager yeah. advice to, no, I think to everybody. That's exactly right. This used to be a big complaint of mine going way back. You know, I started National Review Online in 98 and it was right when politicians were doing their first web strategies. And I remember McCain raised an enormous amount of money online. And so his online director who – might have been a perfectly wonderful, decent, good guy, was taking unbelievable credit for raising all this money for this web strategy because the web was new and interesting, whatever. And I was just like, you know, look, it's like that Steve Martin routine. First get a million dollars. First get a really popular candidate and yeah. then people will go to your website, you know? Um, John McCain is cool. Yeah, John McCain was popular at the moment and so people were going to his website to give him money because it was more convenient to go to the website to give him money. It wasn't because... You know, oh, he was just so much better at HTML, you know, or anything yeah. like that. And you find that kind of thing all over the place where it helps enormously with everything if you're more popular or if you have a product that people want more of. Yeah, and and this is why I really think the, the key is to be a successful politician at the, the presidential level. You've got to really hone it on what it is you are yeah. as a commodity. This is like Newt did this very – I mean, <laughs> Newt Zilla. I remember you used to write about Newt Zilla. Yeah. He was – very nearly the Republican nominee for president Very in 2012. Close. People don't understand how close Newt came to, to being the nominee. And he did it by understanding what he was. And he was running essentially as Churchill, mm. this elder statesman from a bygone time in American politics who was smarter than everyone else, had a bunch of big ideas uh, and was going to come in and talk about big ideas and tell the truth. But there's, there's an added component to it because I, I wrote about this and it's funny. I wrote this column about it and Newt's – mostly bot Twitter follower account, retweeted it like every six hours for like a year. <laughs> and um, the Newt got something that that Trump got in 2016, which was attack the media, attack the media, yes. attack the media. Yep. Every time there was a bad – it was a question he didn't want. At the debate, I'm not going to answer that. That's ridiculous. I think it is an indictment of our entire media industrial complex that you would even, even occur to you to ask that question. And he would come to the defense of other Republicans by attacking the media and attacking the premise of the question. And it's a part of – I wrote the, the thing that Newt's people liked, and I'm not particularly popular with Newt's people these days, is that – what he was doing there was in part invoking the Churchillian persona, but he was leaving in the minds of the viewers that he would be the guy to call Obama on his BS. Right. I want to see that debate. It was sort of like wag the dog. You know, you got to let him – the ticket – got to elect him so got, that you can watch the debate. That's right. right. And I think that's one of the things – you know, that's one of the advantages that Trump had in 2016 is that – there were a lot of people. I just want to see how this thing ends, you know. <laughs> and and so it was. It was very wag the doggy. It was just like the, the MacGuffinization of politics. Politics is entertainment. You can't you can't get rid of Trump before the final act. You got to see. You know, it's got to open at the end for the preview for the sequel with him in the Oval Office right. or it's being sworn in. You know. Yeah. I. Yes, is the answer. Uh, and with Trump, I think you could read this if you read the, all these things as story arcs that. This is the clo you know, 2020 is actually the close of the show. Mm -hmm. It's the end of the arc. You don't get anything new by seeing him president again. 
Well, also, I think right? he, I mean, you know, him winning declare again, victory and it? move on, right? And then it'll be fun to watch him as an ex-president just saying really crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, if declare victory and move on if he leaves, not if he loses. No, I agree. I think I that, yeah, this is if, if he doesn't run, this is your you know, but, doesn't want to be the take. I think Steve Bannon had been walking around telling people privately since literally since 2017 uh, he didn't think Trump would be the nominee. Yeah. Uh, next time around, I think a lot of people close to him see that. I mean, look, he, that's one he's of the a liberty areas where the Venn diagram between me and Steve Bannon overlaps. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, the guy is sort of a libertine. This is not a fun job. Yeah. Uh, he has tried for a long time to only do the fun parts of it. And even those parts aren't super fun after a while. And like, I don't know, like, is it, is it fun being the most hated person in America? I mean, I understand that he doesn't care about that the way that, like, normal human beings do. Right. Uh, because shamelessness is a superpower. But. Right. And some people, like, really do – I would put it this way. Some, some people get energy from the fight and from being hated. It is not clear to me that he is one of those people because he had spent 40 years of in his life sort of being, like, a court jester in mm-hmm. the American public square where people didn't hate him. You know, he was just this goofy guy who was really yeah. rich and people talked about him and he had a board game and he wrote books and, you know, he'd go on Sally Jesse Raphael and stuff right. like that. And he wasn't it – is, it, is it is a difference in kind, not in degree, to go from being that and being ubiquitous to having 60 percent of the country actually hate you. Yeah, and now hate your kids. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and I, it's a weird thing. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't like it. Maybe he Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't care at all, one way or another. Possible. Um, but you, I mean, this is a question for you. What is it like being hated at scale? Um, <laughs> because I've, so I'm not a famous person, right? You know, I, I don't do TV very often, and you know, I'm, I'm basically a nobody, uh, except for like other writers know me, but like you know, the mass of the world doesn't. And I've been hated at scale probably two or three times, and all three of those times, I found it to be enormously. Uh, disconcerting. And I asked some some friends of mine who uh, are hated at scale for a living, you know, what and they when I asked them how they I was looking for like, you know, some some coaching strategies. What do you know, what do you do? What do you And they looked at me like they didn't even understand the question. They're like, "Well, you know, you just slough it off and move on, who cares?" And I you know, because I'm not a pod person, I yeah. I found that advice not satisfactory. Yeah, because well, it is different. I mean, it depends, yeah. so right? One, I mean, if you're a normal human being, you actually have to have some sort of coping strategy for understanding. Well, have you seen my dog tweets? Uh, <laughs> so that's what they are. <laughs> that's part of it. See, so, I'm an anti-dogite, so I skip I know, those. I know, I didn't want to get into that. But um, you had a phrase there that I would somewhat reject when as applying to me. Normal person. Well, no, no. Uh, <laughs> get um, uh, being hated for a living, Right. No, this is uh, right. This is an, I'm sorry. I don't mean that's for what Milo living. literally did. For right. I, I'm Ann sorry. I should not have said for living. I meant as part of what they do is yeah, it's an occupational hazard. I did not, it's cost of business. I'm sorry. I meant that as an ancillary price for the job, not yeah. for being a troll whose job is literally to be hated. Because yeah. there are people like I, that. I, I I can't speak too well for others. There are times when it does get me down, particularly when. You're exposed to the scale of it, right? When well, when, that's the scale. It yeah. is a difference when you in just, kind. You can't open, you know, opening your mailbox, open, reading your mentions is like opening the Ark of Covenant at the end of Ra- Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? I mean, it's just face-melting horror. 
Um, everybody in the business, I should say this to people listening, everybody who's in the business we are in gets a minimum of 10 hate mails a day with people saying, I, you, you are a terrible person, your family is terrible, you're a horrible human being, I hope you die. But that's not what I'm talking about when I say it's scale because that is really just the cost of doing business. Yeah. You do what we do for a living. You put your thoughts out there in the public sphere. People read them. The 10% of the country is just deranged, period. And so you're going to get – some feedback. It's different when it's two thousand a day, yeah. And it isn't like difference in a, the scale is logarithmic, not uh, sort of you know it's more exponential than it is mm-hmm. uh, whatever the, the word is for being just arithmetic, you know, or at least it is for me. Maybe I'm just a crazy person for. But but do you feel like it's different when it comes in as an avalanche? When you hit one of those weird moments where it happens, yeah. Um. Um. But that stuff. You know, if you set up your filters right, <laughs> you can avoid some of it. Um, and um, I used to get a lot more of that uh, than I do these days. But it's – I don't know. I mean I, I don't I don't particularly like it, but I do consider it sort of a cost of doing business. Um, I mind more the – you know, I always mind it more when smart people do and say dumb things than when dumb people – yeah, stupid. fair enough. You know what I mean? Fair and so enough. it's when you see people that you used to have respect for just going after you as a matter of sort of fan service that is in that that is infuriating and enraging in a certain way. Um, well, I you know, I'm I'm happy you say that because I have my my own private reaction to the the tragedy that was Trump's election. Uh, was when I realized how few people in our world really believed in stuff. I, I, uh, I found that so unbelievably depressing. And so I decided to reprioritize like the way I think about the world to place personal relationships above like ideological positions. Yeah. And so for me now, the highest – the highest good really is personal loyalty. Mm-hmm. And so while I have uh, – you know. Now, what really gets me torqued around the edge is when I see somebody who should be being personally loyal to somebody because I know, you know, like with this this big interconnected web and Mm -hmm. I know that they have a relationship and I see somebody going after somebody else purely for the attaboys from it. That gets me torqued off because I feel like, you know, we we owe a duty to each other, whatever we think about, you know, the current occupant of the White House. And I I get really, really upset about yeah, that. I, I, I'm with you. We, and we don't need to name names at this moment on any of that. But all right. So last question because Jack is sitting there. Falling asleep. Wondering. Well, he's, he's the one who has to put this thing together. And how long have we gone for? Hour 20. Hour 20. Wow. There you go. It's like butter. Um, so uh, Mike Gallagher, not the radio host, but the congressman. Yes. Who maybe it's because he's still new, isn't the feckless crap weasel that you think all politicians are. I'm a fan of his. He he's very good looking. My goodness, he's dreamy. I I hear that. I think that's probably true. I mean, and he's single. And he's single. Um, ladies, um, but um, uh, he asked me a great question. He turned the tables on me, sort of like if you've done a couple times here. What is your what are your best half baked ideas? Not totally crazy ideas, but your ideas that. If you were czar, and like one of mine is papal ninjas, right? You know, like I actually, and another one is, I think we should give computer hackers, uh, American computer hackers, letters of mark that allow them, like 
pirates, like privateers of yore, <laughs> to a- attack the other hackers in a virtual sort of neuromancer William Gibson epic battle. And we kind of look the other way because we give him a letter as a mark, right? I think it's a brilliant idea. Uh, I tip the hat to Jeremy Rabkin, a legal professor who first put, my, put me on it. Um, one of his was he wants every airport in the country to have a whole bunch of pull-up bars that you can do and that maybe i think maybe it was i can't remember if it was mine or jack's suggestion or maybe it was his but somehow maybe the 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 quality of your seat assignment is attached to how well you do the chin-ups but either way he thinks that he spent so much time in airports he'd like to do more exercise what give me some of your long-standing half-baked ideas or stuff that you can just come up off the top of your head that you mean aside from all but two members of the american council of bishops resigning that's I think bad. that's a pretty big, yeah, that's not bad. big uh, yeah, Catholic yeah, yeah. half-baked idea. And I sh- we should say well, – I'll give you a moment because I, I surprised you with this. You did so- – I was prepared for the other question. Yeah. So I, I – what did you think the other question was? It was going to be tell me something that – you've been in this town a long time. Oh, OK. Tell me something right, right, that surprised right, we, we me. that too. But uh, in terms of half-baked ideas, it is, it is Jonathan and not Sonny Bunch who started the entire now mass movement of – believing that the Empire are the good guys in the Star Wars universe. Uh, as far as Sonny has gone in this regard, it is only because he's standing on Jonathan's shoulders. Well, I, and I, I'm the one who converted you but with my droids issue. piece. Yes, yes. That, that was Because you were a long-time holdout. Yeah. But even you have fallen in line now. I agree. I agree. So this is I, – I, Jonathan made a very persuasive case that um, – the droids in Star Wars should be considered slaves. And they have a moral universe. They even have a religion. Thank the maker. Thank the maker. Yeah. Um, They feel pain. They're sentient. Um, They talk about loyalty. They talk about loyalty. Um, They have ambition. And just because they're made of chromium or whatever the hell they're made of doesn't mean they shouldn't be considered creatures with rights. And... And yet they are conscripted into forced servitude and should be seen as slavery. And so what did you think of – was it in – it was Free Solo? Free Where, Solo? No, just – Solo. 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 Star right. Free Solo Wars, is the rock right? climbing movie. Before you get into that, so David Fincher was asked to direct The Force Awakens uh-huh. or the the seventh Star Wars movie before it was named. And when he, when he was discussing with Disney what he would sort of make it about, he said – you know, I'm really interested in the droids. I think they're they're kind of like they're slaves and no one really pays attention to them. I think there's a lot of story potential there. And Disney was kind of like, uh, all right, bye. Um, but da- so David Fincher is on board with this, but he, um, he didn't get to t- he didn't get to have his Star Wars movie. Right, but so in the solo movie, so the solo there's movie a slave was, rebellion of sorts. Listen, yeah, and and so this is there is some disagreement over whether did you see I did. the solo movie? Yes. Do you believe that Ron Howard is playing that for laughs? Or playing it straight? Uh, at the end of the day, I think he's playing it for laughs. And I think when history comes around to our position, they will see this as morally. It'll be like blackface. Yeah. Like how be, could you there was, there, How could you have done this? Yeah. 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 I, I mean I don't want to say that I am in the heads of the Star Wars people out in Disney. But uh, I, think, I think I'm in the heads. I mean I think uh, it's pretty clear that the people at Disney – read the original Empire stuff, uh, it's totally clear that they read the droids or slaves stuff uh, because what they did have done with these new new movies is try to evil up the Empire mm. and try to make the First Order all of the things that the Empire wasn't. Right. 
And in a way, it really does establish actually how beneficent the empire was. <laughs> right? Because you see what the First Order really is. Uh-huh. And you say, oh, I, well, the empire was nothing like that. Uh-huh. Right? Uh, and they've even made the, the, um, the First Order much more highly dependent on droids. Right? In the original trilogy, like, the empire hardly ever uses droids. Yeah. It's like two droids in all imperial yeah, control. Yeah. Whereas the rebels have droids everywhere. You know, their primary warfighter is based around a droid. Uh, the X-Wing, I mean, with the R2 unit. That sure, it's, sure, sure. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I think I was wholly correct about this. And okay, well, so I still think that you and Sonny have a huge blind spot in that the destruction of Alderaan was morally indefensible. Period. It was as morally indefensible as the destruction of Hiroshima. No, that is incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, rebellions are different than wars. Um uh, the we don't know anything about Alderaan. I mean, you really can't make a judgment without knowing more about Alderaan because all we know comes from Leia Organa, who uh-huh. everything she tells the Empire is false. Yeah, like literally. So you go through like the series of statements she makes to Grand Moff Tarkin, and every single one of those statements is false that we know about, right? That we know. so why do we then assume that her statement about Alderaan being peaceful and having no weapons? Why would that statement be true yeah. when everything else she has told him is a falsehood? So even so, whatever you think about Hiroshima or Nagasaki, that was not genocide. Destroying an entire planet, the whole race of people on Alderaan is genocide. And genocide in response as a deterrent to a pipsqueak rebellion, I think is 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 it's taking collective punishment a bit too far. <laughs> Um, I also this is this is a super nerdy question, but the Death Star is a really stupid piece of technology. The whole idea it can kill planets. Which right? one? We've now had three of them. Yeah, I know, right? I know, yeah. I know. But the whole concept that unless you have a laser from space, you can't destroy a planet. We have the technology now to destroy a planet, right? You just make a big enough cobalt bomb, put some, you know, extra uranium in it, and boom. There are constantly ships coming up and down to the planet that aren't being searched all over the place. You could just take a sort of a, you know, a little cruiser, bring it down, land it on, you know, some big city, and just boom, or just drop a torpedo from space. The whole conceit of the Death Star, I think, is stupid. How is it that the Death Star is not destroyed by all of the mass that is moving outward at the speed of God knows what from the exploding planet? That's another good question. How does that work? Yeah. Uh, How, for instance, do you get all those resources up into space and build a thing in orbit? Like what – how does that work? Infrastructure. Uh, I mean it must be (laughs) – the idea that they have built – and so if you think about what – how many years elapse from A New Hope – through The Force Awakens, like literally how many years elapsed. So we have Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, who is 18 mm. in A New Hope. He is, what do we want to call him, 70 mm-hmm. in The Force Awakens. Okay, so we've gone, let's call it 50 years. In the, How long does it take to build a bridge? Right. right? You think, you know, we, we build a bridge here in Washington. It's like a nine-year project. Well, in the span that it takes to build seven of those bridges – they have built three moon-sized space stations. How do you – I mean, again, just yeah. think about the, the – think about the lift in fuel that it takes to get all the resources from a planet up into the – not a great idea, right? Not a good use of imperial resources. Yeah, but if say. the empire believes in full employment, 
right? It's like the old Milton Friedman thing about how he visited a development site in Africa, and he's and it may be apocryphal, and everyone was um, using shovels instead of earth moving equipment, and the guy, the development director, said, "Yeah, it creates a lot more jobs." And Milton Friedman said, "Well, you, you could use spoons <laughs> um, <laughs> if that's your priority." Sort of maybe the same thing. Maybe they just needed to make the galaxy great again, which you don't even have to change the initials. No, um, we kind of do make. Make, make galaxy great again. Make a galaxy. Great. Magalaxy. Magaga. Yeah. Okay. Magaga. I, Lady I take Magaga. That back. Yeah. Um, for dyslexics, you don't even have to change the spelling. <laughs> um, uh, maybe it was just a full employment thing. Entirely possible. Uh, I mean, the emperor was a beneficent emperor. Uh, he wanted. See, I think I know you don't care about economic, statements, not manifestos. Economics of Star Wars are far less plausible than anything else. Because yes, uh, we don't have to talk about it. Jack's now really getting no, no the economics. Okay. Of Star All right, Wars so are since you do, since you want to you want to stick with your answer about firing the bishops um, and sending them to monasteries, what's the thing that surprised you most? Since you did think about that, you know what surprised me most is so I came to DC. I was I I was a Chris Buckley nerd, and mm-hmm. I read the White House Mess, and I read Thank You for Smoking when I was in high school, and like I read those books, and I was like, I want to go there. Mm-hmm. I want to go meet Nick Naylor and all these interesting characters who were kind of amoral but not really amoral yeah. because they had hearts of gold underneath. And I was reading George Will every – you know twice a week through his syndicated columns and I wanted to, to be George Will when I grew up uh, because I thought of Washington as this place full of ideas. You know, the only city in America which actually cared about ideas. In New York, all they cared about is money, right? You know, there's 50 different sectors. It's not a company town, but but it's all really about actually money. And in Washington, people didn't care about that. They just cared about ideas and thoughts and, and the war of ideas and the competition, blah, 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 blah. And it turns out that's absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a handful of people in this town, hashtag this town, who care about ideas. Uh, and the rest of them are just on the make. And at least that's true for our side. I don't play enough in liberal lands to know how true it is or isn't on the left. Uh, but to the extent that that has turned out to be true of conservatism writ large, I found that incredibly depressing. I mean, you had you know you had Yuval on one of the early shows, mm-hmm. and he you know his answer to this was you know actually he was surprised at how good so many of the people working in government are. And I maybe that was true when Yuval was in the White House. Um, I have found that very difficult to sustain that sort of optimism about our fellow travelers. So I, I, I enjoy having someone who's more misanthropic and more pessimistic than I am on this podcast. Um, over the weekend when I was giving this talk, I thought it was, I, I, I joked that it was very strange. It shows you the state of where social conservatism is in, in certain intellectual circles that the guy who wrote the book Suicide of the West was being denounced as wildly optimistic. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think there are, there are more better people here than than you do, but I agree that they're a remnant. But I would argue, since just you brought it up, that the the stuff on the – you say you don't play on the left side of the aisle's waters. One of the reasons why I am so dyspeptic about this moment generally is that from an ideological perspective, but also from people on the make perspective, what we're really seeing is a convergence of right and left into the same models. I think a lot of that stuff has been going on on the left for a very long time because the left has been more oriented towards power for much longer than the right has. Well, that's and, what the Clinton resistance to impeachment was. Right. I mean, it was, it was pure, a pure All power, power politics. Yeah. And so that orientation, because they're already sure they're, they're the good guys. 
So they didn't argue about ideas because they didn't feel like they had to. One of the problems I have with the right now is that they're equally confident that they're good guys and, and that the other side are bad guys. And so it's just okay to say things that hurt the other side's feelings and do whatever we can to win because winning is all that matters. I, you can go back 20 years. I've been writing about how the progressive left only cared about power and winning. And that was one of my objections to the whole pitch of Trump, which was he fights and that's winning. That is, Those are historically attributes of sort of how left-wingers and progressives think about politics, too. And so one of the things that I think a lot of people on the right and the left do not want to grapple with is that what Trump is doing is, with some exceptions, he's not moving the, conser- he's not moving the Republican Party to the right. He's moving it towards this sort of swampy convergence with the left in terms of how they actually think about what the job of Washington is. I alone can fix it. Right. Is up until five minutes ago, that was a progressive understanding of what the president can do. And both sides have given up on the idea of policing their own. Right. And this is one of the things, I mean, I, I am not by nature a joiner. Mm-hmm. No. It's like I sort of reject... Individual sports guy versus team sports. Yeah, individual yeah. sports guy for the most part. Um, why I reject like the idea of being part of any movements or the never Trump stuff. Like, I just yeah. think it's icky to me. I don't think I... any of us should be on any sides like that. And one of the appeals of conservatism was always that uh, they were willing to police themselves. Yeah. Right. They were there was constant whether it was Buckley with the Birchers or, you know, the standard with uh, with Pat Buchanan. I mean, there was a lot of like, hey, we're going to blow the whistle on our side because the truth is the way our political discourse works you can't actually police the other side, right? I mean, you can mm-hmm. make fun of them, you can beat up on them, but you're not going to make the other side change. It only, you know, as, as Commissioner Gordon says in The Dark Knight Rises, yeah, we have to fix it ourselves, right? It only gets fixed from inside. And that's entirely true. And when a political movement gives up even the idea that they can fix things or should try to fix things on the inside themselves, uh, like, it's over. Yeah. Right. You're not actually a political movement anymore. You're 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 just a racket. Yeah. No, I agree with that entirely. So, Jonathan Last, thank you much, very much for coming on the Remnant. This is, has to be towards the high end of our longest podcast, but I don't think the longest. Um, and best of luck at the Bulwark. Best of luck with the uh, the Sub Beacon. The Sub Beacon, which can be found in at all of the wonderful places that this very podcast can be found: Google Play, Stitcher, blah 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 blah. All right. Thank you, Jonathan. 